Amen. Praise God. Praise God. If you have your Bible, then please take it and turn to Romans chapter 6 today. If you don't have a Bible, then get the black Bible that's on the end of the pew around you. It's on page 942, and we'll go just a tiny bit on the page 943 today also. If you don't have a Bible for yourself, a physical print Bible that you can take home um, and read, then please take that when it's our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word in your home, in your family, in your life. So we are, uh, we've come to Romans chapter 6. Let's read the first seven verses. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Mm. 20 years ago or so, I spent a week working at a Christian camp in West Tennessee uh, that was serving children from the inner city of Memphis. And in uh, in the cabin that I was in, we had almost exclusively kids who were Sudanese by birth. They they had come over as part of uh, refugee families from the Sudanese Civil War. And these kids were kind of, you know, they were, they were figuring out America, but there was some certain things where you kind of just go, well, I, I don't know if they quite have figured out that we have this in America or something like that. And if you've ever worked with refugees or heard uh, stories about that, you know that uh, when, when refugees come, depending on what country they came from and how similar or how different it was from Western countries like the United States, Um, then they may have a whole lot of getting used to when they get their feet on the ground. And they may have come from some other context, and it's going to take some time to get acclimated to this context. Now, I'm not saying that if you come to America that you have to become just like you and me. We know that there's cultural differences that, uh, that, that are going to be preserved, that are going to be okay. But I'll just give you an example. That, that one time I was talking to a lady who runs a, a, a refugee-helping uh, organization, and she told me that occasionally they'll even have situations where they, they get a family to America, they get them set up with an apartment, and then they'll go in a day or two later to check on them and they've actually found things like a hole dug in the floor of the apartment because this family that moved in was not familiar with what the fixtures in the bathroom were. So, so just, we're, we're not talking about culture, we're just talking about this is a completely different world that they're having to figure out out of, out of nothing. Now, what, what Romans 5 was talking about, starting in verse 12, all the way to the end of the chapter, it was giving us assurance of our salvation as those who believe in the Lord Jesus by talking about the fact that we have been brought into a different world, that we were born just like the rest of mankind in Adam, as just children of Adam united to Adam in his sin, in his death. But when God brings us to faith in Jesus, he makes us to be born again. 
And he transfers us from having Adam as our head to having Christ as our head. We're no longer in the old Adam and in sin and death. We're now in the new Adam, Jesus, and we're in life and salvation. And this is put a lot of different ways throughout Scripture, that we've been brought out of darkness and into light. We, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are now fellow citizens with the household of God. We, we have been brought in. We're in a different realm, a different kingdom. And as we do that, it takes some getting used to. It takes some getting used to. It, it, it would almost be preferable in our own minds, in our own ways of thinking, we would think, well, why doesn't God just, from the moment that I believe, why doesn't he just eliminate all sin from my life? Because he could do that. And we long for that as Christians. And yet, he has set it up in a way where we're already part of this new kingdom, but we're kind of also not yet there. We are not yet perfected. We're already justified in Christ, which means that our standing in God's sight as believers is already saint and not sinner anymore. And yet, at the same time on the ground, we are not yet out of sin completely. We are still being sanctified. So as we come to chapter 6, we're still in kind of the theme that runs all the way from chapter 5 through the end of chapter 8, which is assurance of salvation. But here, he's moving from assurance that's based on justification in Christ to now assurance that has to do with sanctification. Justification meaning you're already counted as right with God. Sanctification means he's working on you. He's cleaning you up. He is helping you more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. So... Both of those things have to do with assurance. As we would look to the objective reality that as believers, we have right standing with God, that assures us of our faith. But also, as we look to the subjective reality, the experience that we have in the Christian life, as we see the Holy Spirit cleaning us up from sin and helping us to get used to being in the new kingdom that we're now part of, that also is something that's going to grow and to help our assurance of salvation. Christ sets us free from sin. Christ sets us free from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day, the presence of sin. I don't know who came up with those three words to describe what sin has to do with us and put those together. I first heard them from our brother Steve Prologo years ago. I miss Steve. I love Steve. But the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. Now, when we have come to faith in Jesus, the penalty of sin is gone. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the power of sin is gone. That's part of what we're going to see as we get into chapter 6, and we're going to see it more and more and more as we go through chapter 6. We're no longer under the power of the old yoke of slavery to sin. And one day, the presence of sin will be gone for us. Now, we wish that were right now. We wish that were right now, but one day it's going to be the case. When you're standing in the presence of Christ, you will have absolutely no more desire to sin because you will see him as he is. Mm. But we're not there yet. So, we have to ask this question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? 
Now, why would he ask that question? He would ask that question because of what we talked about last week. You look back at verse, uh, verse 20 of chapter 5, two verses before where we are right now. It says, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And I told you last week, we weren't going to get to chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 yet. We just wanted to let that truth sink in last week. That where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Oh, that is beautiful. You know what that means, believer? I'm going to preach last week's sermon just a little bit before I get to this week's sermon, okay? It means, it means that no matter how much sin you have in your past, no matter what your sin is in your present, no matter what your sin is in your future that you don't see coming right now, if you are in Christ, if you have been born again, if your faith is in Jesus, God gives you the fullness of his grace. He doesn't give you just kind of like enough grace to cover some of the sin and then you cooperate to cover more of it. That's the false gospel that Roman Catholicism teaches. He doesn't just give you just kind of enough grace to just barely cover it all, and then it gets to zero, and then you kind of got to figure out what to do from zero. No, his grace abounds. His grace is infinitely more than your sin, so that he doesn't just give you enough grace to kind of get part way. He doesn't even just give you enough grace to get the whole way. He gives you an abundance, superabounding grace to have the fullness of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places for all eternity. It's done. It's settled for you, believer. His grace abounds greater than your sin no matter what. And when you hear that, the response from a lot of people who don't believe the gospel is, you can't say that because you're just going to give people license to go and sin more. That's almost always the response to the gospel from those who hate the gospel is don't say that grace abounds more than sin because then people are just going to pull out their get out of hell free card before God and live like hellions. Well, that was the accusation against the apostle Paul. He, he already addressed this very briefly. He kind of almost just skipped over it back in chapter three, but he mentioned it. He said in chapter three, verse eight, why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. He says, this is a common thing that people have charged us, the apostles of Jesus Christ, with teaching. It's as though God's grace is given in such a way that, well, it abounds for all my sins, so I might as well do more evil so that I get more grace. That's the accusation. That's not the truth. But it's understandable that the accusation would come. So the question is, are we to do that? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer is no way. By no means. That is absolutely not in, in line with what the gospel teaches whatsoever. And if you think that, then you don't know God. You just don't know him. If you think that knowing him would lead you into more sin, he is the holy God. Oh, there's so much we could say about that, but here's, here's the reason he gives. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So this is where we want to start today, is the idea that we died to sin. We died to sin. That's, I think I got three points on the back of the bulletin. If you're following along, look at the points, they might help. But a couple of things to know. 
just from the fact that he has to ask this question at all, this question, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? First thing to know is that the free grace of God is not a license to sin. I'm just going to say that up front. If there is anybody out there who is tempted to say, because I have God's grace, therefore I can walk in sin, you just need to know you have a misunderstanding of God's grace. God did not give you grace so that you could then love the darkness and walk right into it. You, 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 we see this in, in so many situations where people will even, they'll, they'll say to God, forgive me for what I'm about to do. No. <laughs> don't do it. Just don't do it. Because God's grace is, is not a license to sin, so you need to know that. But the second thing you need to know is that, believer, if, if nobody accuses you of talking about free grace so much that, that it seems like a license to sin, if nobody accuses you of that, then you're not talking about God's free grace like the apostles did. You're not talking about it like Paul did. Now, it's possible that nobody accuses you of that because you're not sharing the gospel with anybody. And that's a problem. Or it's possible that you're, you're trying to share the gospel with people, but you're doing it in a way where you just want to make so clear that you're not in favor of sin that, that, that it almost doesn't sound like good news at all. It almost sound, just sounds like you're telling people, well, you just need to clean your life up and come to God. That's not the gospel. The gospel is sinners, come to Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weak, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lay your burden of sin down on Jesus. There's no prerequisite to come to Jesus except to be a sinner. You don't have to clean your life up first. So don't make it sound when you're telling the gospel like that there is a prerequisite of repentance. Let me be very clear about this. There is no such thing as a saved, believing person who does not have repentance. That's the truth. But here's something else you need to know. Faith logically comes before repentance. Repentance does not produce faith. Faith produces repentance. So when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, don't tell them you need to repent so that you can then believe in Jesus. That's, that's opposite. It's you need to, in the recognition that you are a sinner against God's law, you need to trust in Jesus. And as you trust in Jesus, God is going to bring about repentance in your heart. So here's, here's what I'm trying to say. Don't shut the door in people's faces out of the kingdom of heaven like a Pharisee would by saying to them, first repent and then believe. That is not the way it works. The way it works is come to Jesus. And when God makes somebody born again to come to Jesus, to trust in Jesus, he gives them a new heart. And it's a new heart that loves God and doesn't love sin anymore. Repentance is going to come together with that. We can talk about repentance. We need to talk about repentance. The Bible talks about repentance. But don't make it sound to people like, well, repenting is what you must do. And then once you've repented, then we'll talk about coming to Jesus. No, it's the other way around. 
Come to Jesus. Come accept his free love and grace and mercy towards you. Let him be your savior. And as you come to Jesus, he's going to turn your heart to brokenness over your sin. That's the way it works. Don't get that order out of line. And if, like I say, one way to know, do I have it out of line? If you're telling the gospel, is, is there anybody who's accusing you of preaching grace too freely? And if there's not, then you're not preaching grace freely enough. So that's one thing to know. But we also know that as we come to Christ, we're not going to continue in sin so that grace may abound. That is not congruent with what the Christian life looks like. By no means, and the reason is, because we died to sin. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He says, here is the objective fact. Believer in Jesus, you died to sin. Do you feel dead to sin today? doesn't matter. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus, you died to sin. If you have been born again... You died to sin. You're not going to be able, it is not possible to have one foot in Adam and one foot in Christ and be in both kingdoms at the same time. You're alive to one and dead to the other, and that's just how it is. If you've been brought from darkness to light, you've died to sin. This is what James says, and sometimes people get mixed up and they think that Paul and James are teaching two different things about faith and about justification and forgiveness. But no, they're teaching the same things. And and in the first few chapters of Romans especially, Paul has really, really been emphasizing the fact that there is nothing that we can contribute to our salvation by our works. That God saves sinners by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is completely 100% a work of God and not a work of ours. And now when we get to chapter 6... He's transitioning a little bit to show the same thing that James emphasizes, which is where there is genuine faith, there's also life change. And so here's what James says in James 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The implied answer is no. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You know what that means? It's not faith. If it's a faith that does not produce life change, it is not saving faith. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Paul and James are not preaching different gospels. They're preaching exactly the same thing. We are justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. It is life-changing. When you're born again, you have a new life in Jesus. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. By the way, today we're emphasizing in the first seven verses of chapter 6 that we are dead to sin. And then when we get to verses 8 through 14, we're going to emphasize what it emphasizes more there, that we are alive to God in Jesus Christ. Now, if we're dead to sin, if you're dead to sin, if you've come to faith in Jesus, don't go back to the old things that you died to. Our cat, Justin, died in 2020, not of COVID. 
And we really liked the cat. We missed the cat. There's one thing that I have not done a single time in the last two years, and that's change kitty litter. It used to be my regular chore that I would go and I would change the litter. It's a disgusting job. But how silly would it be if after Justin died, if I just kept going back in there and changing the kitty litter? If I just kept saying, well, this is just, you know, this is part of my responsibilities in helping the household to run, and so I'm just going to keep on doing it. Makes no sense when the cat is dead. If you just say to yourself, well, this is just who I am. This is just how my life has been all along. This is my identity. This is how I am. And then you come to faith in Jesus. You died. You have died to sin. And what sense does it make to go on living in the old way? It makes no sense. And when you feel those tugs and those habits and those tendencies, like, well, this is just who I am. This is just how it's been all my life. You need to pull out the text of Scripture that says right here to you, believer, that, that you died. And, and how can we who died to sin still live in it? Don't go back and dig up the old kitty litter of your sin because it's comfortable and familiar when you have died to sin. Christian, believer, I want to know, what, what is the old sin chore in your life that you seem to keep going back to, that you just seem to keep repeating? Does it, does it have something to do with pride? Does it have something to do with lust? Does it have something to do with greed? Is it gossip that you would pass off as, well, I'm just telling the truth? Does it have to do with laziness or gluttony? Does it have to do with sinful anger that you would express when the doors are closed in your house or somewhere else? Is it something else? I want to, re- I want to ask you this. Do you realize that that sin that you keep going back to, that you think, I guess this is just part of my personality, I guess this is just kind of how it is for me, that indwelling sin, do you realize you don't have to keep doing it? You don't. You are dead to sin. When you came to Christ, you died to sin. And you don't have to keep walking in it. You don't have to do that chore anymore, Christian. I know you hate it. And you don't have to stay in it. Maybe it's because you don't believe 1 John 1, 9, but I want to call you to believe it. Here's what it says. You hear me say this all the time. I say this all the time. Almost every time we pray on Sunday mornings and we confess our sin to God, I I quote part of this verse, but I just want to know, do you believe this verse? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do two things. What are the two things? To forgive us our sins. That we have an easier time believing. But the second thing is this. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm just going to read the whole verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you may think to yourself, but I have not been cleansed from this unrighteousness yet. I just seem to keep going back to it. Here's the objective truth that's bigger than your subjective experience. Believer, if you actually are a believer, here's the truth, whether you feel it or not. 
you have died to sin. Confess your sin, and God will use that means of confession of your sin, which might be confessing more than just privately to God, by the way. You might need to go beyond that to those you've sinned against. But if you confess your sin, he will not only forgive you, but cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And you say, well, when? It hasn't happened yet. It's still the truth. It's in the Bible. It's written down eternally. It's true. You need to believe that. You need to receive that. And you need to walk in that. Believe, receive, and walk in the fact that God will not only forgive you, but will cleanse you of your sin. You say, but we're going to sin until we are in the presence of Jesus. Well, yeah, but also he's sanctifying us. The things that are bothering you now, you might want to just write those down this afternoon and set a reminder in your iPhone for 10 years from now. You'll have a different phone then, I know, but it keeps the reminders. It says, go back and check on that sin that I wrote down 10 years ago. And thank God for how he's cleansed me. Because you know what? He will. He will. You're going to see him working out his spirit-empowered sanctification in your life because what the Bible says is actually true. You have died to sin, and you are no longer bound to it to live in it, to walk in it. Second thing this says about being dead to sin is that we were baptized into Christ's death. Look at verses 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In mm. verse 5 also, I think I might have put in your outline by accident just through verse 4, but it says in verse 5, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What we have here is a little bit of the reason why God set up what we call the ordinance or the sacrament sometimes of baptism. Why did God set up baptism? Well, it's because it's a picture of Christ's death and resurrection and something that he would have us to go through to picture his death and resurrection. It's a testimony when we baptize somebody. It's a testimony that that person is professing that they have died to their sin and risen together with Christ. Now, why did God set it up this way? I think it's really interesting because when, when, when baptism started up, it was, was with the prophet John, John the Baptist, as they call him, right? Now, there are some who claim that, no, there's uh, Jewish proselyte baptism that goes back further than that. I did some research on that back when I was in school into the actual historical sources, and I can tell you that there is absolutely no historical evidence for the existence of baptism as a conversion rite uh, until John the Baptist shows up. It doesn't show up in Judaism for about another hundred years after that, that proselyte baptism that they do in the mikveh and all that. Um, what this is is something that God seems to have given freshly to John. And when John was doing it, John didn't get to know yet all the symbolism that God had built into it. So John went out and he was preaching what was called the baptism for the repentance of sins. Uh, and, and so there was this, uh, this picture in the baptism of, 
I need to be cleansed. I need to be washed of my sins. The baptism itself is not washing away sins, but it's, as Peter puts it, it's not about the washing of the body. It's about an appeal to God for a good conscience. All right? But there's more to it than John the Baptist even know, knew when he went out and started baptizing people by the River Jordan in the wilderness. He didn't know that he was picturing what would happen with the Savior the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this tells us that part of God's design in it all along was to picture that Jesus would die, as as it puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, that he would die for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he would be buried, and on the third day that he would be raised from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures. And this tells us that this is part of God's design and intention all along is that in that baptism that we would be picturing that, that we have been united to Christ by faith, and we've been united with him in a death like his, we've been united with him in a resurrection like his. As the old uh, early church father Tertullian put it, the immersion is dying with him, the immersion, that's emerging up, is rising with him. This was the picture that was known throughout the early church in that time as they looked at this. And you say, well, I thought, I thought that those older Christians that they sprinkled babies, well, no, they didn't. They didn't until much, much later. And sometimes you even see this. I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent about this, but it, 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 I don't know if any of you have ever been to a Greek Orthodox baptism ceremony. They, they baptize babies, which is not what's in the Bible, but do you know what they do? Since they know Greek, they immerse those babies. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And, and you, can, you can find YouTube videos of stuff, uh, of that and stuff. But what this is telling us is that part of the reason God set it up this way, with the, the going down into the water, the coming up out of the water, is to, to picture what has happened with Jesus. That he died, he went down into the earth, and that he came up from the dead. And we've been united with him by faith to have a new life in Jesus Another interesting thing about how God set up baptism is that it's not something that you do for yourself. The, the, the old um, rituals that God had set up in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant for the ritual washings, those were all things that you did yourself. You, you might even remember how the prophet Elisha told Naaman, the Syrian, to go and to wash himself seven times in the River Jordan. Well, baptism is different because you can't baptize yourself. It, it has to be something that's done for you. And, and, and that, I think, is part of, of what's going on here. It's showing this is not something. I'm, I'm symbolizing something in my baptism that I could not possibly have done for myself. Had to be done for me. It had to come from the outside to be the initiative of God to make me die to my sin and rise to a newness of life in Christ. Now, I could go on for a while about baptism because I am a Baptist with a capital B, and you guys know that. I could go on for a while, but I'm not going to because the point of this passage is not about the logistics of baptism. The point of this passage is about what baptism is symbolizing there. It's just a reminder, hey, think back on your baptism. Or when your church baptizes somebody, think about this. Look at this and let it be a reminder that all of us who have faith in Jesus have died with Christ and have risen with Christ. 
Our old self is dead and gone. Our new self has come. We are a new creation. That's the picture. That's the reference point that God has given to us. That's what we announce when we do the baptism. We say, buried in the likeness of his death and raised in the right likeness of his resurrection. We're united to Christ by faith, though. It's a, it, it is representing what has already happened by faith. That, that we're united to the Christ who died for our sins, united to the Christ who rose from the dead. And as it says in verse 4, this is all by the glory of the Father. Amazing. All glory to God. God is the one who has accomplished this. He's the one who raised the Son from the dead. The, he is the one who raises us from the dead. Jesus has gone and he has accomplished the redemption for us. And the Holy Spirit comes and applies the redemption to us. Guys, do you know when Jesus died and was buried and rose from the dead? Do you know he knew exactly who he was doing that for? He was saving specific people. He says this in, in Revelation, or I guess the, 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 uh, uh, those who are praising Jesus around the throne say this in, in Revelation 5, 9. He, he, this was not just like a general thing where, well, I hope some people accept this someday. It says he gave himself as a ransom for people from every tribe and tongue and nation. He, he gave himself up for her Ephesians 5, for the church specifically, so that she would be washed and cleansed and perfected as a perfect bride of Christ. He knew exactly what he was doing. Believer, what that means for you is as you look at these verses, when Jesus died, he was taking your sin with him to the grave. Your sin specifically, your name engraved on the hand of God. He knew you. And he was taking your sin to the grave. And when he got up from the dead, he knew your name. And he was getting up so that you would get up. So that you would have newness of life now and eternal life forever. You specifically. That's something to thank God for. And when the Holy Spirit comes and takes the completed work of Christ and makes us born again to receive that free gift of God's grace. He takes what Jesus already did, where Jesus 2,000 years ago buried your sin in the ground and got up without it. He takes that and he applies it to you so that it actually makes a difference in you. That's what he says here. He says, so that we too might walk in newness of life. Now, there's a little question here. Why does he say might? Why does he say might? This is the end of verse 4. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father uh, in order that we too might walk in newness of life. Well, why does he say might? Well, it's just, it's just a thing in Greek grammar. That's all it is. Okay? When, whenever there is a, one of these clauses that says something like in order that or so that or here's the purpose for this, what, what comes next is always going to be a so that it might or so that it may. But you need to know when it's the purpose of God. It's not a maybe. It's a definitely. And you see that in the very next verse. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, does it say we might be united with him in a resurrection like his? 
No, it says we certainly shall be. We certainly shall be. So when it says we too might walk in newness of life, it's not saying, well, come to Jesus and you might, you might have a life change, you might not, we'll see. No, it's you've been united to Jesus in a death like his. You absolutely, certainly will be united with him in a resurrection like his, both now and in eternity. There's the, the not yet part of it, which is we're not yet resurrected to actual, literal, eternal life yet. All right? You, there, there's going to be a day when Jesus returns from, from heaven, splits the sky at the sound of the trumpet and the twinkling of an eye. The dead in Christ will be raised first. Right? He, he's, there's going to be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. The just being those who have been justified by faith in Christ. The unjust being those who have been left in their sin apart from faith in Christ. Those who are apart from faith are going to be raised to judgment, cast eternally into the lake of fire, as it puts it in Revelation 20 and 21. But those who are in Christ are going to be raised and transformed to live eternally, not to die and suffer eternally, but to live eternally in the presence of Jesus in the likeness of Christ. When it says we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, this is part of what it's talking about. This is your future, Christian. You will have your grave burst open, and you're going to come out, and your body and your soul are going to be put back together, and you will live eternally in a resurrected body like Christ's resurrected body in the presence of Christ. You will have fullness of joy forever and ever in God. You will be fully blessed in in both soul and body. You will never be sad again. You will be raised. And you say, well, what if I'm not dead when Jesus does the resurrection? Well, the Bible says we will not all sleep. We will not all physically die, but we will all be changed. The dead in Christ will be raised first, and then we who are alive together with them will be caught up together in the clouds. We're going to meet Jesus as he comes back. It's amazing. Amazing. So we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's the thing that's not yet, but it's already too. It's already because that resurrection comes to us now as walking in newness of life. Walking in newness of life. This is one of the things, by the way, that just, just practically, when, when somebody comes through the waters of baptism, that they're committing to. They're saying, I will no longer walk in the ways that I walked before. I will walk in newness of life. But it's not just that commitment on our part. It's also a thing that God accomplishes by the power of his spirit. You will, believer, you will walk in newness of life. You've been united to Jesus in a death like his. You will be united to Jesus in a resurrection like his. Guys, just remember this. It says, here, here's the central phrase that I want you to, to, to remember that I made the point title out of. We were baptized into his death. Baptized into his death. Buried, gone. The old self. There was a, a pirate named Captain Kidd back at the end of the 1600s, and he, the last few years of that, that century, he, he kind of terrorized up and down the east coast of America and robbed a lot of ships, stole a lot of stuff, did a lot of evil. And finally, he was caught in Boston. He was taken uh, in 1701 and tried in London hanged publicly there. 
But before he died, Captain Kidd said that he had hidden 40,000 pounds of treasure. And that 40,000 pounds in 1701 would translate to about $2 million today. Now, half of it, he said he buried it in two places. Half of it was found. It was found on Gardner's Island, which is out uh, off the east end of Long Island, New York. And the other half, nobody ever found. Still lost to this day. And there's a lot of people that think that from the clues that he left behind, that it's buried somewhere along the Raritan Bay shore. And from some of those clues very specifically about where hills and trees were in relation to where he was in the water, a lot of people think that that Captain Kidd treasure is buried in Cliffwood Beach. And so if you ever go to Cliffwood Beach or look at it on a map, you might know that there is a, there's a little lake that's kind of back behind the seawall, and that lake is called Treasure Lake, and that's why. And if you're ever walking along that seawall at low tide, then you'll notice that there's this, this outcropping of rocks that appears at low tide about 100 yards offshore, and it actually has a name. It's called Treasure Island, and that's why. It's because for the last 300 years, people have been digging around Cliffwood Beach trying to find Captain Kidd's million dollars of gold that he hid there or somewhere. Or said, or maybe, who knows, who knows. And maybe even as I'm saying that, some of you are thinking to yourselves, I'm going to Cliffwood Beach after church. (laughs) You know what's happened for the last 300 years as people have dug around Cliffwood Beach trying to find Captain Kidd's treasure? Nothing. A A lot of mud, a lot of wasted time. People going out there trying to think that they're going to find some kind of a shortcut to happiness, but just ending up with a whole lot of muck on their boots is all you get. Now, Christian, what do you get when you think to yourself, I'm going to find a shortcut to happiness by going digging for that old life? You're not going to find it. You already know that. Your sinful flesh keeps tricking you into thinking it's going to be different this time. Maybe, maybe I'll find the treasure this time. But guys, Christian, you were buried with Christ. You were buried. Don't go digging for what was buried. You're not going to find treasure there. You're just going to find wasted time and muck and regret. Don't do it. Unbeliever, you haven't come to faith in Christ yet, but I know you're stuck in your sin. And I I know that you know that it's never going to give you what you want it to. It never has, it never will. And what you need to do is this you need to come and trust in Jesus. You need to bring your old sins, those sins that would kill you, those sins that you inherited from Adam and have worked themselves out in real disobedience in your life. You need to come to them and bring them to Jesus and set them at the cross and die to them. And let Jesus take your old sin and your old self and bury it so that you could be raised to eternal life. Trust in Jesus and he will forgive you and he will cleanse you of unrighteousness. Christian, Christian, when, when you think of Jesus coming up out of the grave, thank God that he brought you with him by name. Do you ever thank God for that? Have you ever thought about that? As you're thinking about the stone rolled away and Jesus coming back, he brought you with him. 
He had your name on his heart. He knew what he was doing for you. And he gave you and bought you this newness of life. Thank him for that and walk in that. And guys, when you see somebody get baptized, remember these truths, not just for what's going on with them, but what, what's true for you. This is part of the way that baptism is a means of God's grace to us, is that we're reminded when we see it, oh, we have been united with him in a death like his, and we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Oh, praise God for that. Praise God. So we died to sin, we were baptized into Christ's death, and then finally verses 6 and 7 tell us this, that our old self was crucified with Christ. I was trying not to use the word old self until we got to this verse. I couldn't help it, but here's where it comes up. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. You hear that? You've been set free. We've talked about this. He's reiterating this over and over and over. You've died to sin. You're, it's buried with Jesus. Your old self was crucified with him. What, what is the old self that he's talking about? He's talking about you in Adam, your identity from birth, that the world tells you that you need to discover and express, and that's their form of salvation, is, is meaningful autonomous self-expression that would be affirmed by the people around you. No, this says, no, it's dead. You need it to be dead. And you need to be alive to God in Christ as your old self was crucified with him. And you say to yourself, well, I don't feel like my old self is dead. I feel like every day I wake up and I have to fight it off. And yeah, that's the truth. These are kind of twin things that the Bible says about us. It's the already and the not yet. Your old self is already dead. And yes, every day you have to put it to death. I heard Phil Johnson talk about it one time, and this, this analogy just stuck with me, and I really like it, that it's like every day you wake up with a dead man strapped to your back, with a corpse tied to you by ropes, and you could walk around all day with the burden of that old dead man, or you could do what God says and cut it off. Put it to death every day. But the reality is, it's dead. Whether you're doing the, the work to, to put it to death every day or not, it's dead. So count it as dead. Here's some other things that the, the Bible says about it. Ephesians 4.21, The truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Or let me read you some more verses. In Colossians 3, verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Guys, I'm going to say it again. Your old self died. Your, your old heart of flesh that was taken out of you, it got thrown in the trash. 
or excuse me, old heart of stone, excuse me. You have the new heart of flesh. You, 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 your old self has died, you have been set free, and that's what it says in verse 7. The one who has died has been set free from sin. I'm not going to go too deep into that analogy about being set free yet because you might notice as you look down in your Bible that starting in verse 15 of chapter 6, he's going to go really, really deep on that. That we were once enslaved to sin, but now in Christ we have been set free from sin. We're now slaves to righteousness, which is true freedom and life. But it just says it very quickly here, so we want to think about this. That one who has been set free, or one who has died, has been set free from sin. Just imagine this. This is not a true story, but just something to imagine. Imagine that there's a slave in America hundreds of years ago. Now, this slave hates being a slave, but he's also used to being a slave. The sheriff walks up to him and hands him a death certificate with his name on it and says, I've already given a copy to your master. It says you're dead. You're free now. Nobody can have dead slave. So the man can hardly think through what to do, but he's happy about it. And then the next day, his old master comes by and sees him and says, ah, there you are. I thought you were dead, but there you are. Come back and serve me. There might, might be a little bit of temptation. Maybe, maybe the master would even say, well, you probably haven't had a good meal since yesterday. And you know that when you come and work for me, I'm going to give you a good meal. You know that I'll have you a nice place for you to sleep. Come on back. And there might be a feeling on the part of the slave like it would be familiar and normal and tempting to go back to what he's used to. But you know what he needs to do? He needs to take out that death certificate and say, sorry. It says right here that the man that you're looking for is dead. You don't have the slave anymore. And he needs to walk away. You know what? That's exactly what we need to do when, when sin presents itself to you, believer. When the old self rears its head and says, come back here. You know you're forgiven of these things. And you know that there's comfort in these things. You know that this is the old way of life that, that makes sense. Come here. I'll give you a nice pillow to sleep on. I'll give, you, I'll give you a warm meal. You know what you need to do, believer? You need to pull out Romans chapter 6, verse 7 which says, one who has died has been set free from sin. And you need to present that death certificate to the temptation to sin and say, sorry, you're not my master anymore. I am dead to you. I have a new life in Christ, and we can walk away. And by God's grace, we can do that. Believer, whether you woke up today feeling like it or not, your old self is dead, and you're not enslaved to it. So walk in that freedom. Walk in that life. You want to know, well, how do I do that? Well, I guess I've said a lot, but you need to put on the whole armor of God. You need to put on the armor of God by picking up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. You need to be in prayer. You need to be on the watch with watchfulness for those temptations and evils that would come up against you. Use the ordinary means of grace in your life. And maybe the sin that you're dealing with is a sin that's not necessarily of unrighteousness in terms of the last six commandments, but a sin having to do with ungodliness in terms of the first four commandments, where you are failing to have your time in the Word. You are failing to have your time in prayer. 
you are failing to have your time in worship and in fellowship and accountability with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you would say to yourself, you might even say to your brothers and sisters in Christ, pray that my quiet times would get better. Pray that my devotional life would improve. Well, do it. (laughs) Do it, believer. Count yourself dead to the sin of not reading the Bible. Count yourself dead to the sin of not spending real time in prayer. Count yourself dead to the sin of thinking, I'll just sleep in this Sunday. Count yourself dead to those just as much as you would count yourself dead to pornography or to gossip or to whatever else it is. You're dead to it. Pull out the death certificate and walk in that newness of life. And if you're not in Christ yet, if you're an unbeliever, do you know what you need to do? I'm going to tell you today, come and die. You need to die. Come and let your old self, yourself, your identity, your being, let yourself die by coming to the crucified Jesus and trusting in him, being united to him by faith, and you will live. You will have a new life and be forgiven and cleansed. You can let go of sin and you can come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that the Spirit would be at work in each of the people who are here and and listening to your word. Father, I pray for those who have ignored your word today. I pray that you'd forgive them. I pray that you would give them the grace to open up their Bibles and to read these words and that the Holy Spirit would let them sink deep into, into their hearts. God, I pray that you would forgive us of our sins. I pray that you'd forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God, I pray for those who don't yet trust in Jesus. I pray that you would give them the grace to come and die and to put their faith in Jesus and to be raised to walk in newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray for us who already know Christ. I pray that you'd encourage us and strengthen us by the truths that you have said are objectively true about us, that we have died to sin, that our old self was crucified, that we were buried and that we're now free and alive to walk in newness of life. God, give us the grace to live out that reality, not because we would try to earn something, but for your glory and for our good. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.